This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Atlantic, the historic magazine that offers a unique editorial view on the arts, politics, and current events. Catch up on the important news happening in the world around you. The Atlantic, found only here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is The Atlantic, and I'm your reader, Susan, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I will be reading from the December issue of The Atlantic, which has been dedicated to reconstruct the nation, learning from America's most radical experience on reconstruction. Our first article is The Archive of Emancipation. In the papers of the Freedmen's Bureau, I found the hopes and disappointments of a people on the cusp of freedom, including my own families, by Lonnie G. Bunch III. In all my years doing research at the National Archives, I had never cried. That day in fall 2012, I had simply planned to examine documentary, documentary material that might help determine how the yet-to-be-built National Museum of African American History and Culture would explore and present the complicated history of American slavery and freedom. As I read through the papers of the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, the Freedmen's Bureau, as it's usually called, I decided to see if I could find records from Wake County, North Carolina, where I knew some of my own enslaved ancestors had lived. I had a few expectations because I knew so little about my family's history. From a surviving wedding certificate from my paternal great-grandparents, I'd gotten the name of my earliest known family member, an enslaved woman named Candace Bunch, my great-great-grandmother. But scrolling through rolls of microfilm documents from the Raleigh office of the Freedmen's Bureau, I realized the chances were remote that I would find another ancestor. But when I turned my attention to a series of labor contracts designed to give the newly freed some legal protections as they negotiated working relationships with their former enslavers, I found a single page documenting a contract between Fabius H. Perry, who owned the plantation next to the one where my ancestors had been enslaved, and Candace Bunch. That page not only filled a void in my knowledge of my family's history, but also enriched my understanding of myself. I was amazed at what a single piece of paper could reveal. For two days of farm work in 1866, Candace received one dollar. And for 44 days of work in 1867, she received $11. That contract also revealed that her daughter, Dolly, was paid $3 for housework. As I read further, the contract delineated what Candace owed Perry for the purchase of cotton and soap. What reduced me to tears was the fact that out of her meager earnings, Candace had spent 60 cents on two baker tins, more than the payment she received for an entire day's work. I remembered how my paternal grandmother, Leanna Bunch, who resided in Belleville, New Jersey, and died two weeks before my fifth birthday, used to bake cookies in the shape of hearts and crescent moons to cajole me into napping. Did she use the very same tins that Candace had labored to buy? Had that been the beginning of a family tradition? 
no matter how difficult times may be, always help the children find some joy. With this personal discovery came the realization that documents like these from the Freedmen's Bureau, well over a million pages, created out of bureaucratic necessity, could help African Americans today better understand themselves and their enslaved ancestors. These records, if made more accessible, could help all of us grasp the challenges, the pain, the losses, the courage, and the resiliency of a people who had both powered and endured the transition from slavery to freedom. They could bring the grand narrative of Reconstruction to a more human scale. The people we encounter in the records of the Freedmen's Bureau call out to be remembered. Their lives, their sacrifices, are told to be revealed and lauded. Stories such as these also provoke discomfort and, in some quarters, resistance. Politicians have been elected by sowing fear about divisive history. Is it divisive to point out that African Americans believed in and struggled toward an aspirational America, an America that had made promises but had not yet delivered? The hope that freedom would transform a people and a nation was captured in a cartoon by Thomas Nast that appeared in Harper's Weekly on January 24, 1863. Nast's drawing celebrated the Emancipation Proclamation, issued by President Abraham Lincoln a few weeks earlier. The left side of the image depicts the horrific impact of slavery, slave auctions and the destruction of families, back-breaking labor in the cotton fields, a woman being whipped. On the right, the benefits of freedom, a country at peace with formerly enslaved children attending school, a black worker drawing fair wages, black and white figures showing mutual respect toward each other. The centerpiece is an image of a black family that had, che- had achieved middle-class status, with well-clothed children and elders sitting by the hearth. Nass cartoon looked forward to a future where fairness and freedom were the norm. That was the hope of Reconstruction, and the engine of that hope was the Freedmen's Bureau. On March 3, 1865, after nearly two years of debate, Congress passed an act to establish a bureau for the relief of freedmen and refugees. Lincoln signed it into law the same day. The bureau, embedded in the War Department, was one of the first federal forays into social engineering, in some ways anticipating the more activist government policies of the New Deal and the Great Society. Simply put, Its charge was to protect the basic rights and help provide for the basic needs of the four million people who had been, until recently, enslaved. The value and impact of the Freedmen's Bureau from its inception until it was defunded in 1872 cannot be overstated. At its peak, more than 900 Bureau agents were located throughout the former Confederacy, in rural hamlets and urban centers. Among other things, these agents documented the violence that was at the core of white Southern resistance to Reconstruction. They responded to and recorded the desire of the formerly enslaved to confirm their marital standings. They gave food to the poor and the indigent regardless regardless of race. They helped establish black educational institutions, from elementary freedom schools to colleges such as Shaw University in North Carolina and Howard University in the nation's capital. More than 40 freedmen's hospitals served the sick, the malnourished, and those whose health had been damaged by the conditions of slavery. 
During a period when most in the South fought to violently overturn the changes implemented by Reconstruction, the Freedmen's Bureau was one of the few outlets where African Americans could address their needs, obtain legal assistance, and see some evidence that change was at hand. One could argue that the Bureau was, in essence, a form of reparations. Simply by virtue of doing its work, the Freedmen's Bureau amassed records of the stories, hopes, and disappointments of a people on the cusp of freedom. These documents revealed the agency of the newly emancipated. Freedom was not given but was seized and created by people who made a way out of no way. But the documents underscore how difficult the struggle was. Although they made the efforts of individuals and families visible and concrete, the records also reflect how the promise of Reconstruction was derailed by violence, northern apathy, and the rise of Jim Crow. The documents unlock the names and experiences of people who are often invisible or silent in the conventional telling of history. A significant portion of the Freedmen's Bureau papers reflect the importance of family, of reconnecting with kin separated by the vagaries of slavery, of protecting children. With freedom came an unyielding desire to find oneself by finding those who'd been sold away. The Freedmen's Bureau, people hoped, could aid in restoring the bonds of family. In the documents, a freedwoman named Cena Smith described how her mother had been sold from Virginia to Tennessee about 18 years past by Colonel Marshall. Smith hoped that her mother, Eliza Williams, who she was now able to support in her old age, could be found and noted that she was a member of the Baptist Church in Nashville. Requests for assistance contained poignant details that might help locate a family member. A freedman named Hawkins Williamson wrote from Galveston, Texas, searching for his sisters, whom he had not seen in the 24 years since he'd been sold at sheriff's sale in Virginia. One of my sisters, Jane, he wrote, belonged to Peter Coleman in Caroline County. Wilson's letter expressed a belief that the Bureau could reconnect with him with his family. I am in hopes that they are still living, and I have no other one to apply to but you. William drafted an additional letter to be given to Jane. Your little brother Hawkins is trying to find out where you are and where his poor old mother is. I shall never forget the bag of biscuits you made for me the last night I spent with you. He continued by saying he had led a good life and had learned to read and write a little. He said that he hoped that they might see each other, but added that if they did not meet on earth, we might indeed meet in heaven. Given that the letter remained in the files of the Freedmen's Bureau, it is unlikely that Wilson was ever reunited with his family. Numerous letters and dispositions describe the frequent terrorist attacks aimed at controlling, intimidating, and killing the formerly enslaved. Some of the violence was random. Jacob Carpenter from Gaston, North Carolina, stated to an authority that he'd been hunted through the town, dodging gunfire, and that his life was not safe at any time. Toby Jones of Wilkes County, Georgia, went to visit his wife. Two men assaulted him. One, he recounted, caught me by the collar and struck me with his fist, several blows in the face. He then picked up a rock and ran after me and said he would kill me. White vigilantes also organized raids, focusing their ire on black teachers and ministers and those bold enough to vote. In Tennessee, churches were burned. 
In Arkansas, the schoolhouse for colored children at Phillips Bayou was burned down and a teacher was ordered to leave. Night Riders, vigilantes intent on violently enforcing white supremacy, stuck at those, struck at those who worked to bring change to the South. On the night of April 18, 1868, 20 mounted men attacked the home of William Fleming of Franklin, Tennessee. A few months later, in nearby Brownsville, a party of freedmen were assaulted on their way home, and four of their members shot. The Freedmen's Bureau agents stationed in Tennessee noted that there is an organization who style themselves Ku Klux, and they are committing depredations on colored people, property, and outrages on their persons. The Bureau papers highlight the role of women during Reconstruction. Throughout the documents, one encounters black women demanding fair labor contracts, insisting on respect and common courtesy, seeking and providing educational opportunities, and fighting on behalf of their families. The paperwork exposes the violence and sexual abuse that were all too common in the lives of black women. When Harriet Kilgore of Chickasaw County, Mississippi, worked for her former enslaver, Landon Kilgore, in 1865, she was punished for working too slowly. I told him I had done nothing for him to whip me. He said he wanted to whip me for some time and that I thought I was free. In September 1866, Rhoda Ann Childs of Henry County, Georgia, was beaten, tortured, and ravaged by an ex-Confederate soldier, in part because her husband had served in the goddamn Yankee Army. Amanda Willis was forced out of her mother's home near Springfield, Tennessee, and taken by a white man who brought me down into the woods and had forcible connection with me. Women fought back. In Wilkes County, Georgia, in May 1866, Tempe Hill, a freedwoman, saw a white man strike another black woman, her sister-in-law, Lydia Hill. She left her work in the field and confronted him with the intention of fighting him and to take up for her color. She struck the assailant with a chunk of wood. The notion of access to education and to American history through an African-American lens was central to the creation of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, which opened in 2016. I was its founding director. The effort to create the museum ultimately led to a project to make Freedmen's Bureau records available to the broader public. To begin the process of creating the museum, it was essential to understand the knowledge base of future visitors. For two years, starting in 2005, the museum conducted surveys throughout the country, reviewed an array of specialized reports on America's understanding of its past, and organized on-the-street interviews that focused on young, diverse participants. The data revealed that respondents had strong and conflicting views about the role, impact, and continuing resonance of slavery in American life. Almost everyone believed that slavery was an important story. Many felt that the museum should focus on how slavery shaped the African-American experience and the way that slavery, America's original sin, was an essential element in the founding and evolution of the United States. An equal number felt that, although it was important, slavery had little meaning and relevance for contemporary audiences. I remember vividly the day when a black woman returning from church greeted me as we passed on the street. She thanked all those involved in building the museum. But as she hugged me, she whispered, 
whatever you do, don't talk about slavery. To her and others, the museum had a choice to help folks get beyond slavery, to no longer be constrained by a past that some felt was embarrassing. What this divide made clear to the museum staff was the need to centralize slavery and freedom as forces that helped define and continue to influence American politics, culture, and economics. But that would not be enough. The museum needed to humanize slavery so that visitors would recognize the strength and resiliency of the enslaved. Besides slavery, members of the public were most interested in understanding their own family history. Today, programs like Finding Your Roots on PBS and commercial services like Ancestry.com have made personal history accessible and engaging. But in 2005, the way forward was less clear. In due course, the museum would establish the Robert Frederick Smith Explore Your Family History Center. As we considered the center's role, the staff realized that the biggest contribution would be to help illuminate the lives and histories of the enslaved. The obstacles to families trying to recover the stories of enslaved ancestors were immense. For one thing, African Americans were not enumerated by name prior to the 1870 census. The best way to get beyond this barrier lay in the Freedom Bureau's documents. Generations of scholars, including Ira Berlin, Thavolia Glimpf, and Eric Foner, had researched the wealth of information that these papers contained and published scholarly monographs for academic audiences. But access to this trove was too important to be left in the hands of professional historians, or made possible only for those who could travel to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., which owns and houses the original records. This understanding led to the creation of the Freedmen's Bureau Project, whose aim was to create a digital portal that would make the Bureau's documents searchable by name and subject. Suddenly, hundreds of thousands of personal histories would be available, not only to scholars, but also to families in search of their ancestors, and by extension, in search of themselves. Helping people find not embarrassment, but strength and inspiration in their enslaved ancestors. That portal could not have been built without an effective collaboration involving the museum, the National Archives, and a pioneering genealogical resource, FamilySearch, an organization dedicated to helping all people discover their family history. One major challenge was the need to review and transcribe upwards of a million pages of documents. Transcription was essential because the records written in 19th century cursive by many different hands are difficult for contemporary audiences to read. For this portal to have the desired reach, the documents needed to be transcribed by hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals, an army of trained volunteers whose energy had the additional benefit of helping generate support and enthusiasm for the museum itself in the years before its opening. Much of the success of this ongoing transcription effort can be credited to family search and the community that it nurtured. Steeped in the traditions of the Mormon Church, Family Search had developed technology and processes that proved essential. Quality control was built in. Following its lead, Freedmen's Bureau transcriptions are subject to a two-step review, first by a volunteer, then by a member of the Smithsonian staff. 
If additional edits are required at the final stage of review, the process begins again. Today, people accessing the Freedmen's Bureau digital collection can see the original document as well as the transcription. One can tell a great deal about a country by what it chooses to remember, by what graces the walls of its museums, by what monuments are venerated, and by what parts of its history are embraced. One can tell even more by what a nation chooses to forget, what memories are erased, and what aspects of its past are feared. This unwillingness to understand, accept, and embrace an accurate history shaped by scholarship reflects an unease with ambiguity and nuance and with truth. One frequent casualty of such discomfort is any real appreciation of the importance of African-American history and culture for all Americans. Why should anyone fear a history that asks a country to live up to its highest ideals, to make good to us the promises in your Constitution, as Frederick Douglass put it? But too often we are indeed fearful. State legislatures have passed laws restricting the teaching of critical race theory, preventing educators from discussing a history that might make our children feel guilty about the actions and attitudes of their ancestors. Librarians around the nation feel the chilling effect of book bans. Some individuals who seek to occupy the highest office in the land fear the effects of an advanced placement class that explores African-American history, a history that, as education officials in Florida have maintained, lacks educational value, a history that does not deserve to be remembered. There is no reason to fear a history that, while illuminating the dark corners of America's past, also displays values and expectations that are central to America's identity. Resiliency, family, education, fairness. The voices within the Freedmen's Bureau papers demonstrate how the African-American fight for access to education, economic opportunity, and basic human rights created paths that benefited all Americans. Rather than running from this history, we should find in it sustenance, understanding, and hope. In the end, we can't escape the past anyway. What Joe Lewis said of an opponent applies to the legacy of history. You can run, but you can't hide. Lonnie G. Bunch III is the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. He was the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Also in this December issue on Reconstruction, we have the Years of Jubilee. In 1871, the choir of the struggling Fisk University engaged in a gambit to save the school. It decided to go on a singing tour of America. The choir achieved more than its members could have imagined. By Van R. Newkirk II. One of the treasures of black history is preserved in a plain gray box, stashed away in a quiet room. In Nashville one morning, as the Fisk University campus, campus shimmered in the summer heat, I walked into the archives of the Franklin Library to see it. A collection of papers from just after the Civil War about the founding of the university and others like it. I put on a pair of white cloth gloves to handle the pages. The stories I read in that collection were real. 
but they also felt to me like cosmology, recounting the beginnings of black institutions I love and the arduous labors and journey of the people who made them. The world described in the archive seemed especially malleable, open to possibility and open to being shaped according to the hopes of the black people in it. One story in particular stood out from the diary of a young woman named Ella Shepard. In the summer of 1871, she was stuck waiting for a train home in a hotel somewhere in the middle of Tennessee. She was traveling with a group of students, also black, back to Nashville after singing at a concert in Memphis. Traveling in the South was dangerous for any black person, let alone for a co-ed group of students making their way through the state where the Ku Klux Klan had been founded. According to Shepard's diary, the presence of the black singers did indeed attract attention. A mob of local white men engaged in what another source euphemistically described as electioneering began to threaten the students. As Shepard recalled in her diary, the troop left the hotel with the mob still in tow and walked to the railroad stop where the choir began to sing a hymn. The mob melted away. As the train approached, Shepard wrote, only the leader of the mob remained. He begged with us with tears, falling to sing the hymn again. The group did not yet have renown or even name, but the encounter at the train stop was an omen. In time, the choir would become the world-famous Fisk Jubilee Singers. In the diary written by Shepard, who served as the group's pianist and composer, preserves its origin story. Beyond that, the diary and the other documents in that gray box offer a founding story of the university itself, and they explain how the Negro spiritual went from being slave music to one of the most popular genres in America. Considered solely as cultural artifacts, the collection at Fisk, the delicate manuscripts, the brittle newspaper clippings, the photographs, the musical arrangements, is a marvel. In my hands, I also held crucial insights into the radical possibilities of Reconstructionism, a period of American history that has been purposefully warped and misunderstood for generations. In the process of revealing and restoring and understanding the actual truth about that era, we might also glimpse a new opportunity for ourselves. We might even again pick up this project of reshaping the world. In his foundational work, The Souls of Black Folks, W.E.B. Du Bois devotes the last essay to sorrow songs or Negro spirituals. He describes spirituals as radical folk music, their very existence a rebuttal to the notion that black people were too primitive to hold political rights. Du Bois himself was a proud alumnus of Fisk University and no stranger to the archive. In the essay, he provided a capsule history of the pilgrimage of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. It began shortly after the train stop incident. The year 1871 was a crucible. Six years after Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox, the true terms of peace were still being negotiated, especially insofar as freed people were concerned. By 1871, Republicans in Congress had managed to have the states ratify the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The 11 rebel states had been readmitted to the Union. Buoyed by the votes of black men, five black representatives held congressional seats. 
Congress had created a Department of Justice and given it a mandate to destroy the Ku Klux Klan. Fisk and dozens of other institutions, many of them sponsored by the Freedmen's Bureau, had sprung up to educate black students of all ages. They formed the nucleus of what we know today as historically black colleges and universities. My father recently served as the president of Fisk. But the revolution was faltering. Many northern white Republicans had grown weary of the constant federal oversight required to protect the rights of black people in the former Confederate states. Their attention and the nation's had turned west to the country's expansion and the bloody disposition of the indigenous people who lived there. The Freedmen's Bureau would come to a formal end in 1872, but its efforts were already effectively exhausted. Meanwhile, former Confederates tallied rolling successes in their redemption of Southern governments, restoring themselves to power through violence and fraud. It was in this environment that Fisk University's choir, 10 students ranging in age from 14 to their early 20s, took to the road. Several singers had been born into slavery. One, Benjamin Holmes, had read the Emancipation Proclamation aloud to those imprisoned with him in a slave pen in 1863. They'd undertaken their journey in order to save their fledgling school. Fisk University had been founded in 1866 with the support of the American Missionary Association, an an abolitionist organization that turned its energies to educating freed people after the war. But with the primary objective of abolition met, donations dwindled. Fisk was one of several normal schools and universities that the AMA was now struggling to support. Campus conditions were miserable, Shepard recalled that in her diary, in cold weather, students shivered through the night in substandard housing, with barely any protection from the elements. They subsisted on food that was nearly inedible. The situation at Fisk was a microcosm of black life in the South. Unprecedented promise and potential, oblivion living under the same crumbling roof. George L. White, a white former Freedmen's Bureau official and Fisk treasurer, was aware of the dire circumstances. The future of the institution was in peril as was the entire project of educating freed people in the South. But White had an idea. He believed that the small choir he'd founded could help save Fisk. He and Shepard had constantly drilled the singers, taking time to practice whenever the group studies allowed. The concert in Memphis had showcased their talent, and perhaps the performance at the train stop had ordained their purpose. White proposed a tour through the North, hoping to raise a sum of $20,000, about $500,000 today. Most of the prospective audiences for these benefit concerts would be white. The director hoped to astonish them with the choir's polish and to rekindle the abolitionist fervor that had financially supported Fisk in its infancy. Fisk faculty and the parents of its students thought White's scheme was ridiculous. They called it a wild goose chase and pointed to the real dangers that a group of young black students would face on the road. The AMA actively discouraged the tour, worried that a poor showing might, in fact, impede fundraising efforts. 
In an act of disobedience, White drew funds from the school's meager treasury, and the singer set out for Ohio. The word reconstruction first brings to mind the idea of reconstituting what was, exactly as it was. Buildings might be reconstructed after disaster to the same specifications as before, defying the calamities that felled them. Ultimately, the South was reconstructed in this way, with racial domination and labor exploitation as its foundation. But reconstruction can mean something else, too. The word can connote taking the old and making it new, taking rupture and rubble as opportunities to fix fundamental faults, or to create new edifices altogether. For the span of just over a decade, America tried this definition in starts and stops, attempting to fashion a truly new nation from the wreckage of the Civil War. The Fisk University singers were part of that effort, attesting to the truth that Reconstruction was not and never could be ended by the hand of the federal government. As Du Bois wrote in The Souls of Black Folk, and as Shepard recounted in her diary, the early going for the singers was miserable and dangerous. Lynchings and wholesale pogroms of black communities were so common as to be unremarkable in the South, and threats of violence did not stop once black people arrived in the North. According to the Fisk history, the students also faced the ire of white people who spelled Negro with two Gs. White crowds often ridiculed the singers, and their group was regularly denied accommodation in white establishments. As the Fisk history has it, the world was as unfamiliar to these untraveled freed people as were the countries through which the Argonauts had to pass. The social prejudices that confronted them were as terrible to meet as fire-breathing dragons or the warriors that sprang from the land sown with dragon's teeth. The singers tried to take things in stride. It was never lost on them that every tour stop was history made. When Shepard was an infant, her own mother had been bound to the land and was sold away from her like nothing more than livestock. The fact that at 20, Shepard could freely take a train to the north was at once ordinary and revolutionary. For their early performances in Nashville, Memphis, and Cincinnati, the singers pulled mostly from a repertoire of standard popular songs designed to showcase their equality with white choirs and to impress any sophisticates in the audience. This was no small thing. The belief in the intellectual, moral, cultural, and evolutionary inferiority of freed people was pervasive among even white liberals in 1871. Just three years earlier, the editors of the Philadelphia-based Lippincott's magazine had argued against the proposition that the Negro in his native state knows what music is and ascribed any facility in music among black people to clever mimicry or traces of white ancestry. According to Andrew Ward, the author of Dark Midnight When I Rise, a history of the Fisk University singers, the main interaction that most white Northerners had with what they believed to be black culture was the buffoonery of minstrelsy, mostly performed by white entertainers in blackface. The choir found itself caught between white apathy and white hostility. At several venues, the singers barely sold enough tickets to cover their cost. 
In Chillicothe, Ohio, where George White used to teach, they drew enough of a crowd to instill hope of earning some money. But before they performed, they learned that the Great Fire on October 8th had destroyed much of Chicago. They donated all of their proceeds from that night, less than $50, to victims of the fire. The autumn stretched on. White prayed for deliverance. He declared that the singer should take the name Jubilee after the year in the biblical cycle, whose arrival was celebrated by the manumission of slaves and the absolution of debts. A new way forward for now was what the Fisk Jubilee Singers presented itself during a concert one night in Oberlin, Ohio. Mostly in private, the singers had been practicing a new repertoire, songs that the majority of white people had never heard. They cobbled together snatches of work songs and sorrow songs that many of the students or their parents had learned in the fields while enslaved. The minister and abolitionist Thomas Wentworth Hickinson had written in the pages of this magazine about his experience of the Negro spirituals sung by black soldiers during his time as a Union officer, calling them a stimulus to courage and a tie to heaven. But for the songs they sang, there were no songbooks to work from. White, Shepherd, and the singers wrote much of the music down for the first time, helping formulize the genre as they went. Shepard noted in her diary that these singers harbored a deep ambivalence about even practicing spirituals in private. The songs were associated with slavery and the dark past and represented the things to be forgotten, she wrote. Spirituals were imbued with the pain and the shame of bondage, which several of the Fisk singers knew firsthand. The songs were also considered sacred. To some, putting lyrics to paper or accompaniment meant stripping the spirit from the spirituals. Even in front of the small, mostly black crowds that the choir had entertained before setting out on tour, the spirituals had been mixed in sparsely. But that night in Oberlin, the Jubilee Singers did something different. As guests of a meeting of the National Council of Congregational Churches, they were given an opportunity to perform. Among the songs that they chose was Steal Away, one of the spirituals in their repertoire. The song begins with a plaintive call to Steal Away, which is then echoed by the choir. The song's quiet opening lyrics eventually swell with force to deliver the trumpet sounds in my soul. The Jubilee singers had announced themselves with thunder. As the Cincinnati Daily Inquirer wrote on November 17th, They sung with such effect that the script was as abundant as the applause, a market basket full of money being taken for the university. The praise from the choir's Oberlin performance helped them earn the notice of Henry Ward Beecher, an immensely influential abolitionist and preacher who had once sent rifles to John Brown's anti-slavery guerrillas in Kansas. Beecher invited the group to sing for his congregation in Brooklyn. Traveling to the event, the singers knew that it would likely be their last chance to prove themselves and save the university. They expected Beecher's congregation to be a friendly crowd. The same church had backed Beecher's most extreme forays into abolition and had hosted escaped and former slaves before. But the singers also knew that even the expectations of friendly crowds could be misshapen by prejudice. They chose to begin the Brooklyn concert with a dramatic innovation. 
singing from the church balcony, obscured from the crowd by a curtain, their spectral voices filling the nave. And they chose to lead with Steal Away, the spiritual that had gotten them to Brooklyn in the first place. According to Fisk's account of the Jubilee Singers, so soft was their beginning that the vast audience looked around to see whence came the celestial music. Gradually louder and even louder the voices rose to a glorious crescendo and then back down to a mere whisper, I ain't got long to stay here. As they sang, the curtain was pulled back to reveal their faces. The audience's reception was rapturous. They clamored for more and would not let the singers cease. Donations poured in. Beecher blessed the spirituals, though with an unfortunate image. Only they can sing them who knows how to keep time to a master's whip. Ultimately, the Jubilee Singers became one of the world's most famous performing acts in the world. They toured through 1872, capturing the attention of both black and white audiences. Their domestic success launched them abroad. They sang for Queen Victoria and for Kaiser Wilhelm I. In the end, George L. White's Wild Goose Chase raised not $20,000, but almost $100,000. The tour saved Fisk University, but more than that, it preserved an art form. Spiritual such as Steal Away became the core of the Jubilee Singers' performances, and this expanding repertoire became the basis for the songbooks of standards that still grace black churches today. The spirituals captured the imagination of post-abolition literati. Mark Twain became something of a Jubilee singer's groupie, attending several shows to experience the music that he called the perfectest flower of the ages. Some white listeners came just for the music. Some came for the spectacle. Some claimed that the Jubilee singer's spirituals had made them more sympathetic to the plight of the Negro but their reactions were secondary to what the new prominence of the form meant for the people who'd made it. After one show in Washington, D.C., the Jubilee Singers were thrilled to have an audience with Frederick Douglass, then the most famous black man in America. He told the singers, You are doing more to remove the prejudice against our race than 10,000 platforms could do. He was so taken by the young people from Fisk that he sang for them, Run to Jesus, a spiritual that he'd learned as a child. The singers transcribed his song on the spot, adding it to the songbook. In a playbill for a later concert, promising the new song, the Jubilee singers wrote, Thus, under the influence of this song, he at last gained his freedom in the world gained Frederick Douglass. The golden age of the Jubilee singers was brief. Shepard, the pianist and composer, had endured chronic illness even before the tour. Exhausted by the group's barnstorming, White and several other members also took ill. As white supremacists in the South steadily destroyed black civil rights, and as the North lost interest in protecting those rights, traveling as a black co-ed group grew too dangerous. In 1877, when Congress officially ended Reconstruction, ratifying the deal that gave Rutherford B. Hayes the presidency and effectively withdrew federal troops from the South, the goings-on at black universities were no longer considered by most liberal white people to be matters of their concern. 
With the coming of Jim Crow, institutions such as Fisk would form a network of care for black folks, places where the true possibilities of Reconstruction could be preserved, even if neglected by the rest of America. The Jubilee Singers have been part of this effort. They still perform at concerts across the country. But Negro spirituals went on to change the country as a whole. In America's fragmentum antebellum culture, before the advent of true mass media, the closest thing to national music had been the traveling farce of minstrel shows. Yet during Reconstruction, both the live performance and sheet music of Negro spirituals exploded in popularity. Spirituals prefigured the rise of the blues, a direct successor, as the first truly national popular music. The black writer and activist James Weldon Johnson, writing in 1925, called spirituals America's only folk music and up to this time the finest distinctive contribution she has to offer the world. Through the efforts of the freed people themselves, the songs that had sustained them in the field became a national art form. This transformation was not without cost. It wouldn't be long before black music was co-opted by white musicians and consumers. The early, early radio recordings of spirituals were often performed by white singers and marketed to white audiences. For much of white society, the spiritual was the music of the freed people, minus the freed people. For this reason, many radical black scholars later considered the preservation and proliferation of the spiritual to be the ultimate capitulation a sacred piece of black culture saved only by performing it for people who largely thought the black culture was unworthy. Maybe there is another conclusion. After all, the spiritual was always meant to be performed in public, in full view of the overseer's watchful eye. But beneath the surface, the lyrics and rhythms of spirituals carried messages among the enslaved about kinship, about love, about daily life, about the freedom of the promised land, and even about rebellion. Insubordinate messages persisted precisely because, like the editors of, editors of Lippincott's magazine, the overseers believed that the black culture was counterfeit and that the people chopping cotton in the woods could not turn words into effective weapons. The insurgency of the spiritual always relied on white consumption. It was the poison in the master's tea. Today, the legacy of Reconstruction most often surfaces in its legal consequences. The 14th Amendment, in particular, has been the subject of major recent Supreme Court rulings on voting rights and abortion rights. The concept of equal protection under the law has never ceased being contentious. But the story of the Fisk Jubilee Singers shows that the Constitution was not the only aspect of America subject to renegotiation during Reconstruction. The singers had set out to perform popular white music in the main, but they soon found purpose in remaking American music in their own image. The same was true of every other element of life into which freed people entered. Throughout Reconstruction, societal assumptions about labor relations, gender roles, the makeup of families, the means and ends of education, and much else were in flux across the country, driven by the efforts of emancipated black people in the South. Experiments in new way of living propagated wherever black people pressed feet to earth. Freedmen's towns, 
flourished across the South with all manner of governance, would-be utopias winked in and out of existence. In coastal South Carolina, freed people soon became the majority of farm operators on the Sea Islands. There, they resisted guidance from the Freedmen's Bureau in the hopes of their former enslavers, rejecting the local market economy in favor of building spontaneous pastoral communes out of former plantations and growing crops for subsistence rather than for the market. Across the South, freed people reconstituted families pulled apart on the auction block, but did so along much looser kinship lines than the nuclear family unit. In Savannah, Georgia, black women amassed tracts of land in their own names to pass on to their children. Many freed people forsook the surnames of their enslavers or even the first names they'd been given. Renaming was often an act of both radical purpose and plain descriptiveness. Freeman remains a common last name today. In music and otherwise, it was clear that the main goal of Reconstruction, as it existed in the hearts and minds of the people being reconstructed, was not to leave the country as it was, but to shake the foundations of possibility. It was in this pliable reality that the Fisk Jubilee singers began to make their mark. The potency of spirituals in their insurgent history were clear to Du Bois. He tried to make his case, often writing in publications that endorsed the bigotry, sometimes clothed, sometimes naked, of his white contemporaries. In 1901, as a young scholar still relatively new to the white literary scene, Du Bois wrote for, for a series on Reconstruction in the Atlantic. Alongside skeptical essays from the historian William A. Dunning, who founded the School of American History that claimed the policy of making black people citizens was a mistake, and Woodrow Wilson, who argued that freed people had not been fit to vote. Du Bois wrote, The granting of the ballot to the black man was a necessity. The very least a guilty nation could grant a wronged race. In his essay, Du Bois helped begin a slow reckoning with history that continues today. He did so not merely through his own insight and intellect, but through the revolutionary act of taking the freed people and their ambitions seriously by describing what they wanted from Reconstruction. For most of the past century, the history of possibility and black self-determination during Reconstruction was considered too dangerous to teach. Du Bois' own work on the topic was ignored by white historians as long as he lived, and textbooks inspired by Dunning littered classrooms in the South and the North, even during my own childhood. To this day, the most famous and widely seen de depiction of ostensible black life during Reconstruction might be the racist 1950 film, The Birth of a Nation. The D.W. Griffith epic that portrays Klansmen as heroes saving the South from black savages and was endorsed by Wilson during his time as president. That fact suggests just how much the real story of black reconstruction has been obliterated from the public eye. A growing movement on the right today again finds the history obscured by Wilson, Dunning, and the rest to be too inconvenient or perilous for schools and libraries. Agitation against depictions of black history and agency is often grounded in the claim that it unfairly makes white people of the present feel guilty for the sins of the past. But that might just be cover for the real reason. 
Perhaps the true danger of black history, especially of the era when the formerly enslaved seized and shaped their freedom, is that it shows us that there are more and better possibilities than the present. That was the fundamental message of most spirituals and of the sacred code of the promised land. That message is kept in a box of documents in a campus library. Even when salvation seems beyond reach, it may still be in our own hands. In late August 2022, I walked into a building full of people in Drew, Mississippi. Folding chairs had been crammed everywhere they could be crammed, from the bathroom hallway to the front doors. We had all gathered there for a belated memorial service for Emmett Till, the boy brutally lynched in that very town by white men in 1955. Local citizens, dignitaries, school children, journalists, everyone was packed together. After the processional, after the greetings and prayers, the Valley Singers of Mississippi Valley State University took the floor. They began a rendition of Lift Every Voice and Sing, written by James Weldon Johnson and set to music by his brother, J. Rosamond Johnson, in 1900. The first two verses of the song evoke the trials of blackness in the past and present. The choir sang Johnson's lyrics with triumph, their voices filling the space. Johnson was born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1871, the same year the Jubilee Singers set out on their own tour. Their story inspired his own work cataloging and interpreting spirituals. He dedicated his first book on spirituals to those through whose efforts these songs have been collected, preserved, and given to the world. The history of the Jubilee Singers had been important to him. The lyrics and composition of his own anthem were inflected by the spirituals they rescued. To Johnson, the revival of the spiritual marked a change in the attitude of the Negro himself toward his own art material, the turning of his gaze inward upon his own cultural resources. In his view, those cultural resources were themselves the power to build and not just imitate, to shape a world. The song we all heard in that hot room in Mississippi was a tribute to a legacy that allowed us to be there in the first place. Sweat dripped down my face as the singers brought the song home. The final verse slowed down to a quiet, piercing prayer, and then a final exalting march. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand. Even in that room, blanketed in Mississippi heat, I felt chills. Van R. Newkirk II is a senior editor at The Atlantic and the host of the podcast, Floodlines and Holy Week. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Susan with The Atlantic. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.